Well, good evening. May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Now, I'm sure at least some of you are wondering why I'm dressed like this, since this is new to our church. We won't talk about it every week, uh, but so that when you bring visitors and like Keller, they ask, why is that man dressed like a monster? Or like Avery, they say, who is graduating? (laughs) You might be able to answer them uh, or at least try to help address why we might be wearing robes. The first thing that uh, I would like to point out is that this is not a first, second, or third tier issue. Nor do we look down on our brothers who do not wear robes. This is simply a matter of preference. John the Baptist says of himself in respect to Jesus in John 13, he must increase and I must decrease. And it's in our view that ministerial robes help with this. In the scriptures, God's various representatives wear robes in order to remind people that they are functioning in a capacity that is bigger than the individual. So much like doctors and firemen and policemen wear uniforms to indicate that they're functioning in an official capacity, historically, ministers of God's word have done the same. So when I was a fireman and we would arrive on scene in bunker gear, everyone knew that we were there, not as Bo, Corwin, and Danny, but that we were firemen there to help. And so when we said, get out, They listened to us more than maybe someone else. And as we talked to uh, the kids in Sunday school, if a police officer in uniform were to run into the school and tell them to get in their rooms and to lock the doors, they would likely do so because the police officer knows something about the situation that they don't. Likewise, as Ministers, Our hope is that when you look up here and you see a man robed up, you don't just see Bo and Mark standing up here on our own authority, but as ministers of the gospel of Jesus Christ, trying to tell you something that you may not know already. He must increase. We must decrease. So if you remember nothing about robes, try to remember that the robe is not meant to elevate the man as some super spiritually elite Christian. But it's to subsume the individual under his office as proclaimer of God's word and enable you to hear him as such. Likewise, the Church calendar can and should function in a similar way, not as a mandatory observance, but as a useful tool to remind us of who we are in light of the triune God and where we stand in his story. Rather than being governed by mere earthly times and seasons, we are caught up in a time and a season and a story much larger than ours. When we celebrate the church calendar, we are reminded that as Christians, we are not divided into tribes, tongues, and nations separated by our various cultural holidays. But when we observe the Christian calendar, we are united to our brothers and sisters all over the world and throughout history. We are not divided by national loyalties in deciding whether we should celebrate the 4th of July versus grieving over the American Rebellion. 
And we are not divided by Juneteenth or Cinco de Mayo. Rather, we are elevated together into the greatest holiday calendar that's ever existed. The church calendar is divided into two main parts. The life of Christ and the teaching of Christ to his church. We begin the new year as we are about to by commemorating the coming of the Son of God to the earth during Advent, which means coming and then Christmas. We then celebrate Christ's manifestation to the Gentiles in Epiphany. And we are then reminded of Christ's battle with sin and Satan and death during Lent. And then we celebrate a risen king who entered into death on Good Friday, rested on Saturday, and broke down the gates of hell on Easter Sunday. It's after that we enter into ordinary time, the life of the church, where we look not so much at the life of Christ as the teachings of Christ for his church. And then finally today, on Christ the King Sunday... We remember that our king will come again and he will come after the church age to subdue all his and our enemies. Christ the king will return and he will set all things right. Now regarding the different colors, we associate certain cultural holidays with certain colors. What holiday do you associate with orange and black? Halloween, yes. Red and green, two awful colors. Christmas, yes. Red, white, and blue. Fourth of July, there we go, all right. So with each respective time of year, certain colors remind you what time it is. Likewise, in the church calendar, the colors on our tablecloth, the color on our vestments, and even our fancy PowerPoint change to reflect the time of year that it is in the church calendar. Like orange and black and red and green, these colors are aids to remind God's people what time it is. They're to help redeem the time, if you will. So when you see black, You mourn during Lent and Good Friday. When you see white, you think Christmas and Epiphany and Christ the King Sunday today. And because we are all prone to forget the story or at least elevate our own particular time in it, we do it all again with the worldwide church year after year until that day when Christ returns. And as I mentioned, today is the last day in that calendar, Christ the King Sunday. So my hope for us is that we would be reminded together with the worldwide church that Jesus is in fact the King we need, even though he may not be the King we deserve. So it's to that end I invite you to stand if you are willing and able to honor the reading of God's word from Hebrews chapter 1 verses 1 through 5 and 7 and 8. We'll not be working explicitly from this text, but it does serve as a good foundation for what we'll be discussing this evening. Hear God's word. Long ago at many times and in many ways, 
God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is much more excellent than theirs. For to which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Or again, I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. Of the angels, he says, he makes angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. But of the Son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. This is the word of the Lord. May God bless the reading and the hearing and the preaching of his word. And may he grant us all the grace to trust and obey him. And all the church said, amen. Amen. Please be seated. Now, as you know, I don't often reference movies directly in sermons for various reasons. First, I don't want my reference of a movie to be an unofficial endorsement. For I've seen many movies that I wish I could unsee, and even the ones that I appreciate having seen, I can't always recommend in good conscience. Secondly, I don't watch movies, generally speaking, to analyze them so much as to simply be entertained. I know that's frowned upon in some of your circles, but when your mind is on overdrive all of the time, it's nice to just watch some good guys beat up some bad guys, to be glad that they saved the day, and then go to bed. And plus, I'm not deep enough to analyze most of the plots most of the time anyway. The third reason I don't reference movies often is because usually people tend to remember the movie reference more than why you chose to pick that movie to reference anyway. But I'm going to take a shot here because I think that this movie provides a really nice gospel thread that we can follow to Christ tonight. Now, I know not all of you have seen The Dark Knight So I'll try to get a brief summary to get you up to speed. Thankfully, it's a superhero movie, uh, so you should get the gist. Or it might not be a superhero movie, depending on your particular view of Batman. Okay, so the characters are Batman, good guy, but kind of bad. Joker, bad guy, really bad. Harvey Dent, supposedly really good guy, turns out bad. Lieutenant Gordon is the good cop that kind of falls in the middle of all of it. Joker tries to destroy the city by turning them against Batman, the Dark Knight character. Seth, you know what I'm talking about. Harvey Dent is the White Knight character. He is supposed to have what it takes to stop Joker and Batman, but through a series of events, turns into a bad guy. 
So Batman has to save the wicked city from the wicked Joker and take the blame for the revered Dent so the city can have some hope that some good men still exist somewhere. Now, I hope that enlightening synopsis didn't ruin the utterly unpredictable superhero movie or offend any super superhero movie fans, but that's the best I could do for you in under a minute. Now, I tell all of you that on Christ the King Sunday to get you to one of the final lines of the movie uttered by Lieutenant Gordon. As the movie comes to an end, the cops are shown to be chasing Batman again for killing the good guy turned bad Harvey Dent character. The only people that know that Dent was bad and Batman was good are Gordon family and Batman. At the funeral of Harvey Dent, the supposed white knight character, Gordon, bends the truth by saying that Dent was the hero Gotham needed but didn't deserve. As the movie closes, Batman is seen running away from the police while Lieutenant Gordon narrates he is the hero that Gotham deserves but not the one that it needs right now. Now it's those Two little phrases that are quite good and, much to my surprise, have produced endless online debates about what that means. People spend a lot of time debating whether Lieutenant Gordon should have said about Batman, he's the hero that Gotham deserves, but not the one it needs, or... There's a whole other group of people that want to argue he should have said, Batman is the hero that Gotham needs but not the one they deserve. As silly as it sounds, where you land on that debate will largely depend on your anthropology and your theology. What kind of hero do we deserve? What kind of hero do we need? Those are two fundamental questions of reality. And how we answer them will determine the trajectory of our entire existence. Thankfully, we don't have to guess. We have a gracious God who has told us over and over again the answer to those questions in his word. But even if you don't believe his word, history tells the same story. Christian, we have sat through enough sermons together and been to enough Bible studies to know the right answers to these questions. But our family history, our genealogy, shows that our theology often doesn't line up with our lives. In our Old Testament scripture reading, we got a summary of how God's people have responded to the question, what kind of king do we need? Our forefathers thought they needed a king like everyone else around them. Their God had just gone to war with the gods and the king of Egypt. One by one, he defeated their principalities and disarmed their ruler, proving himself the king that Israel needed. They couldn't deliver themselves. They needed a deliverer. And yet, how did they respond? The very 
Spirit of God was with them, guiding them in the wilderness, promising to defeat all their enemies and deliver them into the promised land. And yet time and again, they refused to trust and obey him. The book of Exodus tells of how they were afraid to follow him. And the book of Joshua tells of how they didn't take seriously the command to drive out the evil from among them. The book of Judges tells of how time and again the people would fall into worshiping the same things as their surrounding culture until they were enslaved. And how time and again they would cry out in their distress for a king, for a deliverer. Mercifully, God would raise up a ruler for them. But as our forefathers continued to spiral downward into sin, so did the quality of ruler God had to choose from. Finally, in 1 Samuel, the people come clean. They didn't think they needed a king like the one they had in God. They thought they needed a king like everyone else. They didn't want to trust and obey God to act in His timing, in His ways. They wanted their will to be done in heaven as it was being done on earth. They wanted immediate results to satisfy their immediate needs. And yet, God was still merciful to them. He didn't crush them. He didn't cast them off and abandon them, even though he would have had every right to do so. Rebellion and Treason against a good king and a good kingdom deserved to be snuffed out. Instead, he warned them that if they were to continue down this road, he would give them the kind of ruler that they wanted and deserved. And this kind of king would lord it over them. This kind of king would send their son to fight his wars and to tend his fields. This kind of king would tax their hard-earned money and he would take their daughters for himself. The kind of king they were asking for is the kind of king that would enslave them, essentially taking them back to Egypt like they had wanted for so long. So like any faithful hearer, When their God and their king warned them of what was ahead, if they chose to keep following their desires, they took him at his word and repented of their sin. Wrong. That's not at all what they did. They said, no, give us a king that we may be like all the nations. And so God did. He gave them The kind of king they deserved. A king like them. He gave them Saul. Their dark night proceeded to do exactly what God said he would. And the opposite of what people said they wanted from a king. He sent their sons to war. He taxed the people. And he viewed his kingship not as an imperative to serve his subjects. But as indicating his rights to be served by him. By them, his slaves. And when it came time for this strong and mighty king to do what the people wanted, time for him to fight their enemies for him, he showed his true colors and sent a boy to the front lines. Eventually, this victorious boy 
This supposed white knight would become king as well, but even he wouldn't be the king they needed. Even he would be two-faced, demanding others serve him and others die for him. Even he and his beloved sons would take women as their own. And even their kingdoms, which looked great from the outside, would fall to ruin. Leaving God's people estranged, without hope, longing for yet another king. Christian, that's our story. Skeptic. Even if you didn't know all of this about Christian history, it probably doesn't surprise you to find out that Christians would act like this. You observe what rulers we vote for and who we seem to align ourselves with politically, and it probably all looks hypocritical to you. Perhaps to you, it looks like we are enslaved to our incoherent political ideologies. And perhaps you're right to a degree. But just as we invite your critique and your desire to correct us and our desire to repent where we can, I encourage you to go back and to take an honest look at blatant non-Christian history to see how it fares, relatively speaking. Look at your Alexanders and your Caesars. Look at your Huns and your Stalins. Look at your Idi Amin's and your Kim Jong's. You see, we all know we need a king. We all know things are messed up. And we all want someone to fix it. We all think that if our chosen one were in power or our ideology were embraced, then that would make things right. But you see, when we do this, what we're really saying is that we think that what the world really needs is a king just like us. Think about it. When we critique rulers and authorities, no matter their stripe, whom do we tend to think they need to be more like? Us. If they only thought X or did Y, like I would think X or do Y if I were in their place, then things would be better. But you know as well as I do, that isn't true. Take an honest inventory of your own kingship or your own queenship in your own life. And let's evaluate just how that turns out. I mean, don't you think that a king should always put his subject's best interest at the forefront? Isn't that how you rule your home? Over your wife? Over your kids? Isn't that how you rule at work when you talk to your assistant or your customers? Or do you get tired? Do you mail it in and worse, rule harshly and bitterly? Don't you think a king should seek to destroy evil and fight for those who can't fight for themselves? Is that how you rule? Do you stand up to the bullies at school? Do you seek to protect the unborn 
and the immigrant? Shouldn't we have a king to have the wisdom to know what's right and the courage to carry it out even when no one else around him can see it at the time? Do you have that kind of wisdom? Do you have that kind of courage? Or do you say and do foolish things? Do you cave when times get hard or your family or peers degrade you? Christian, in saying you're a Christian, you are admitting to be unfit in and of yourself to rule as a king. Skeptic, deep down, you know the answer to those questions puts you as needing a king better than you could ever be as well. We default to thinking we want a king who thinks and acts like us, but when we're honest, that king and that kind of king has proven to be terrible. Every time we meet the new boss, we find out he's the same as the old boss, and yet time and time again, we get fooled again. If we keep thinking the king we need is a king like us, we will continue to get the kind of kings we deserve. Wicked and impotent, making great promises, but being terrible saviors. Thankfully, God didn't just hand us over to a complete democracy. He doesn't provide the kind of king we deserve. Instead, he sent the kind of king we need. If you'll humor me a bit longer, we'll see that if we humble ourselves, we'll see that Jesus is not just the kind of king that we need. He's the kind of king we should want. King Jesus puts his subjects best interest at the forefront of his mission. He came and he said he came not to lord his authority over them, but to serve them. What a king. He didn't tax them to feed himself. He fed the hungry. He healed the sick. He comforted the brokenhearted. King Jesus came to destroy evil and to fight for those who couldn't fight for themselves. Time and again, he proved himself stronger than his enemy and his minions, casting them out of helpless inhabitants and delivering them from Satan's evil dominion. King Jesus had the wisdom and the courage to always do what's right, even when everyone stood against him. His followers wanted a kingdom of this world and for this world, and they wanted it right then. They attempted to enthrone him, and they were willing to follow him into battle against Rome, an understandable desire in order to see God's people delivered. But Jesus knew there was more that needed to be done for them than to just set up another earthly kingdom. There were greater needs that needed to be met than physical, greater battles that needed to be fought than earthly, and a greater mission that needed to be accomplished than could be perceived by mere men. There weren't just earthly needs that an earthly king could meet. We needed a heavenly king to meet our heavenly needs. 
You see, we haven't only fractured things on this earth. We have alienated ourselves from the God of the universe. And it's there we need a king to deal with our treason. In that sense, you and I do need a king like us. A king to take our place. To take our place as rebels. And yet a king who is not guilty of the same crimes himself. That was and is the kind of king God knew we needed. And that is the kind of king that Jesus was and is. It is in the good news of the gospel story that we get to know this truth regarding the kind of battle that needed to be fought. And the kind of battle Jesus, God in the flesh, king of heaven and earth alone could fight. Unlike Saul and David... He didn't shy away from battle and take that which didn't belong to him. Unlike Batman, he doesn't break some rules to keep others. And unlike Harvey Dent, Jesus doesn't appear to be something that he isn't. And unlike you, and unlike me, Jesus doesn't need something that he isn't unwilling and able to provide for others. Instead, Jesus rode. He rode valiantly into battle over palm trees as king of creation and over the robes of men as king of mankind. He explained that he needed to be lifted up on a cross as his throne, bearing the guilt of men and casting out Satan, the insurgent. And he did just that. King Jesus put aside his immediate desires to serve his subjects. He had the wisdom and the courage to do what was needed, not just what we think we wanted. And it's this King Jesus that now sits at the right hand of God the Father, and it's from there that he will return to judge the living and the dead. We are tempted, like so many of our forefathers, to forget that Jesus has delivered us, that Jesus sits upon his throne, and that all his enemies are right now being made footstools for his feet. And because we're tempted to forget that, we are tempted to despair and to place our hopes in mere men. But brothers and sisters, on this Christ the King Sunday. Remember the story you're caught up in. Remember, you have not the king you deserve, but the king you need. And as Abraham Kuyper so famously said, there is not a square inch in the whole domain of human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not proclaim mine. Now we know that. And we know that we know that. But we also know that our experiences and our responses don't often always line up with what we think we know. So when you find yourself in these things getting out of balance, when like me there's times you don't feel like Jesus is on his throne, and when you feel like Apollyon is about to strike the fatal blow, Here are some things our king invites us to do. Mourn, 
pray, trust, and obey. Kings were often looked to as the wisest of all peoples. And fittingly, our king gave us wisdom literature to help us in our time of need. So when it doesn't feel like Jesus is on his throne, mourn. Mourn over the brokenness you see out there and the brokenness that you see in here. Job and Ecclesiastes are books that we can read and see unjust suffering and the vanities of this life. Mourn and pray. Pray with God's people and His subjects. Thy kingdom come. Use the prayers of our wise King. Read, sing, and memorize the Psalms over and over. There you'll find a companion in your mourning as well as faithful responses to it. Trust that your king loves you and he has the wisdom to do what's right even when you don't understand. The Song of Solomon shows a deep love that has the courage and the strength to wait to consummate that love in its time and not a moment before. So trust him. And finally, obey Him. Even when you don't feel like Jesus is King, obey. In Ecclesiastes, the preacher points us to the end of the matter. Revere God and keep His commandments. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. And the book of Proverbs can help you navigate, weigh, Study how to apply the king's wisdom in the king's world. Brothers, sisters, skeptic, believer. Not only does Christ call you to believe these things as subjects in his kingdom. But he's prepared a meal for you. He wants to nourish you and he wants to sustain you in your journey of believing and doubting and believing again. In a moment, Christ the King will invite all who have been united to him in baptism, those who trust and obey him, his kingdom of priests and fellow heirs to his table. He invites you to suffer with him in order that you may be glorified with him. Let's prepare to do that with our King now. Let's pray. Christ our King, we thank You that even now You're executing this divine office. Thank You for subduing us to Yourself. Thank You for ruling over us as a servant King, but a King nonetheless. Thank You for defending us. Thank You for restraining and conquering all our enemies. And thank You for being the King, not that we deserve, but the King that we need. We await Your return together. And for the day when we will all stand before the judgment seat of God, and on that day every name will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Amen.